0: Saturday. Not long ago, we did a podcast on Andrew Carnegie, and one of the questions that we got from listeners afterward was why we had not discussed the Johnstown Flood. Carnegie was a member of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, which owned the dam that failed in that flood, and the whole area had a number of other connections to Carnegie Steel. Carnegie contributed to relief efforts after the flood, and he funded the building of a new library for the town. But neither he nor any of the other members of the club ever expressed any responsibility for the disaster. So there's a whole episode about that flood in the archive. It's from 2012 from past hosts Sarah and Dublina. And since it came up in our listener mail recently, we thought we would share it again today.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And depending on where you live, you've probably gotten used to the threat of a particular type of natural disaster. I remember where I grew up, it was always tornadoes that people were afraid of and that came through the area a lot. Mm -hmm. And when I lived on the Gulf Coast, it was hurricanes, of course. Hurricanes,
1: yes. And for the 30,000 people who lived in Johnstown, Pennsylvania in 1889 – what they had gotten used to dealing with was floods.
2: Yeah, located in a floodplain at the confluence of two rivers, Johnstown flooded really frequently. So it was pretty common to see water in the streets, and locals had gotten used to moving their valuables and themselves to the upper floors of their homes when the flood water started to roll in. They had
1: kind of a routine exactly. dealing with
2: it. But on May 31st, 1889, a flood of such magnitude hit the town that even those who were holed up in their homes' upper levels weren't ready for it. It's been called one of the worst disasters in American history, and nobody in Johnstown really saw it coming. So that's partially because there was more to this natural disaster than just nature, and that's part of what we're going to take a look at today.
1: First, though, we're going to paint a little picture of Johnstown for you so you can understand why it flooded so frequently in the first place, and then just what kind of community it was at the time, too. So 19th century Johnstown was a busy industrial town in southwestern Pennsylvania. And according to an article by Amy Lynn Brown in National Parks, entrepreneurs had not too long before turned it into a a larger industrial sort of production area of steel and iron. Um, And not long before that, it had just been this small rural community. So a real dramatic change for Johnstown.
2: And, and it had a burgeoning working class community that lived there too. The town itself was kind of hemmed in by the Little Conema and the Stony Creek Rivers, which ran along the edges of Johnstown and then merged on the town's western end to form the Conema River. These rivers flooded the town at least once every year. And there were a couple of reasons for that, a couple of possible, I guess, instigators Expected for the flooding. flooding causes. Right. One was snow melting and draining from the nearby Allegheny Mountains into the rivers in the springtime specifically, which would cause the rivers to overflow. And then, of course, at any time of year, heavy rain could also cause flooding.
1: Flood the river. So those were the natural surroundings of the town, but there was also a man-made body of water that was nearby. It was 14 miles up the Little Kanima River, and it was called Lake Kanima. Although don't think of it as as some sort of natural lake. It was originally called the Western Reservoir, and it had originally been created to supply water for the Pennsylvania Canal that went between Johnstown and Pittsburgh. But the canal system became obsolete not long after the reservoir project was complete, so not having anything to do with this large body of water, the reservoir was sold and had a few different owners before it was finally sold to the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club in 1879. The club made this former reservoir into a bit of a a ritzy social affair almost.
2: It did, uh, and it was a organization to which many prominent Pennsylvanians belonged, including big names like Andrew Carnegie, Henry Clay Frick, and Andrew Mellon. And members would go to this club to kind of escape the industrial environs of Pittsburgh and enjoy things like fishing, sailing, even musical performances – And it was the club that renamed the reservoir Lake Conema. Just an important note to make here, the dam that kept Lake Conema contained, the South Fork Dam, was essentially made of packed dirt and rocks, and it had not been kept up properly for a number of years by yeah. the time it came into the club's possession.
1: Well, and most disturbingly, somebody had even taken out the dam's drainage pipes at, at some point in order to sell them for scrap. So there wasn't any way to drain the reservoir
2: in order to make repair. So even if you had wanted to repair the dam, you would not have been able to. According to the Johnstown Flood Museum, when the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club took over, it started maintaining the dam a little bit better. But they also made some changes to it that made it even less safe. For example, they added some screens across the spillway to keep the expensive game fish that they'd stock the lake with from escaping, and this prevented the spillway from draining the lake's overflow. They also made the dam a couple feet lower so that two carriages could pass over it at the same time. So this is, we've
1: painted a picture of of what the situation was like uh, in May of 1889, and from a weather standpoint, that spring had been rather unique. Uh, According to an article by Emily Lordich in WeatherWise, a series of storms had led to record-breaking rainfall that year. So we're getting the perfect storm here, as you can tell. On May 31st, the residents of Johnstown were experiencing a particularly heavy storm. And Brown writes that rain was falling at a rate of an inch per hour and rivers were running six to seven feet above normal levels. By afternoon, the streets in town were already flooding. So people were going through their their normal routine when there was a flood. Head up to the upper floors, ride out the storm, you know, put some of your belongings upstairs. Again, just a very typical sort of scene for Johnstown.
2: What they didn't know is that 14 miles up at Lake Conema, a scene was taking place that was entirely unprecedented. The depth of the water of the 450-acre lake was 60 feet near the dam. And officials at the club had been watching that level continue to rise during this storm with great concern, of course. The morning of May 31st, they were so worried about the dam collapsing that uh, they actually started to think about taking action. And I mean, people in Johnstown, just another aside here, had sort of known that the dam failing, and the dam breaking down was a possibility because of the condition of the dam. And some people even joked about it. And this kind of reminds me of when you do live in an area where a certain type of natural disaster is sort of prevalent. Like I remember living on the coast and when hurricanes would come, there were always people who just sort of didn't grim, really take it seriously. Grim <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's always that contingent of people, I think. But... In this case, when the people at the club saw what was happening, they did try to take a few steps, as I said, for, to keep the dam from failing. They, for example, added dirt to the top. They also dug a second spillway to relieve the pressure. And they removed the screens that kept the stocked fish from escaping. But it was too late at It this was point. too late at this point. Nothing they did was able
1: to help. And at about 3 p.m. that day, people at the club and in the nearby community of South Fork watched in shock as the dam, quote, just moved away, sending 20 million tons of water barreling down the valley, of course, headed right toward Johnstown in just a matter of minutes. And according to Gene Allen's book, Floods, the club wasn't completely <laughs> – they they were trying to take efforts to, to save the dam, but there was also a warning sent out. I mean, a couple guys had ridden through town earlier shouting warnings that the dam was about to fail, but people didn't really listen. I mean, like you were just talking about, there's kind of a – an almost joke, like maybe the dam will fail, but people didn't really think that was going to happen.
2: Within an hour of the dam failing, though, that 20 million tons of water finally did reach Johnstown. It was traveling at speeds of anywhere from 20 to 40 miles per hour, and by the time it reached the town, it was said to have had as much force as Niagara Falls, which is just a stunning... comparison to me. Well,
1: and it created a tidal wave, too.
2: It did. It was a tidal wave of water that was 40 feet high and carried all sorts of debris with it by the time it hit Johnstown, including industrial and farm debris, houses, barns, animals, even people, both dead and alive. The townspeople were totally blindsided by this. Some people only heard a thunder-like sound as the wave approached. Apparently, it only took 10 minutes, basically, to wash the entire town away.
1: Yeah, and, and really, the entire town was washed away. Trains, entire homes just swept up in the wave. So, of course, people were, were swept up in it, too. Some, of course, drowned right away in the flood of rushing water. Others were killed or injured by the debris that was in the water. Uh, a lot of people, and this is maybe one of the more horrifying aspects of the flood, so a lot of people, about 300 to 400, ended up surviving initially, but then getting swept away by the rushing water and getting trapped up against this large stone bridge that was owned by the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. And this bridge was actually blocking a lot of the stuff that was rushing through the town, you know, boxcars, barbed wire, big chunks of homes, dead animals, creating this this log jam essentially. All the debris though clogging the, the bridge eventually did catch fire and the people trapped against the bridge, of course, died at that point. Again, just one of the most horrifying aspects of this already horrifying story. Ultimately, though, about 2,209 people died in this disaster. And just to give you a sense of what those numbers mean for a town of Johnstown's size, it's something like one out of every 10 people in the town
2: 770 of the victims were never identified and uh, the, the number that Sarah just put out about the number of people total who died, that included 99 entire families. 1,600 homes were destroyed and $17 million in property damage was done. So that was just to give you an idea of the toll that this disaster wow, took. This. Some people, however, did survive by riding out the flood in their homes or in the upper stories of other buildings in town, others took a crazy ride down the Conoma River and were later rescued somewhere downstream, which is just wild to me. I mean, I know I just said it's crazy, and then I said it's wild, so I said that twice. But It is.
1: I have nothing to, to <laughs> add to that. It's hard to imagine.
2: Being act- carried alive. With
1: barns and yes. dead animals going along with you. But uh, as you can imagine, either of those survival scenarios were were pretty harrowing. And there are, fortunately, a lot of examples, though, a lot of records from the flood. So we're able to see what it was like for people and how they managed to, to survive. And one story that gets retold a lot is the story of a six-year-old girl named Gertrude Quinn Slatterly, who was swept away by floodwaters while she was hanging on to this muddy mattress as a kind of raft. And and as she recalled, she was terrified. She was calling out for someone to help her. And this man dove into the water to, to save her. He made his way over to her, onto the mattress, lifted her up. And she later wrote of the experience, quote, I put both arms around his neck and held on to him like grim death. Together we went downstream. And um, miraculously, they eventually reached this white building where men were leaning out the window trying to nab people as they came by, rescuing people. And the rescuer threw Gertrude through the air. Some people later said it was as much as 15 to 20 feet through the air uh, to, to safety for the other guys to be able to catch her.
2: Another woman, Anna Fenn Maxwell, was in her home with her seven children when the flood hit. She survived, but unfortunately her kids weren't so lucky. The Johnstown Flood Museum actually shares how she described the scene, and it's pretty sad. She said, quote, "'The water rose and floated us until our heads nearly touched the ceiling. It was dark, and the house was tossing every way. The air was stifling, and I could not tell just the moment the rest of the children had to give up and drown.' What I suffered, with the bodies of my seven children floating around me in the gloom, can never be told.
1: Yeah, so pretty powerful story. And and the Johnstown Flood Museum's website shares several survival stories like this. Um, some are more uplifting than others, of course. Um, in some cases, too, we should say entire families did survive, but it seems like you would have had to have been very lucky, and all your family members would have had to have been quite lucky for that to be the case. One thing that is remarkable about this flood, though, The relief efforts began pretty much immediately, and people all over donated clothing and food, lumber, medical supplies, money, Doctors came to town to to help treat the injured. Uh, Within five days, Clara Barton and her newly established American Red Cross were in town. Uh, It was the first peacetime disaster that the organization assisted in, and and they really did a lot. They built warehouses for donated supplies to be stored, um, hotels for, for the homeless. Buildings that were still standing were repurposed into makeshift morgues to avoid The spread of disease, all all of that sort of stuff. Um, It seems kind of unbelievable, but all of these recovery efforts seem to have paid off almost immediately. According to, to Brown's article, it only took a month for businesses to reopen and only five years for the cleanup effort to be completed.
2: This wouldn't be the last time however that Johnstown would have to deal with floods even though the South Fork Dam was already destroyed so you would think oh this big threat is is taken away so that's not an issue but in 1936 Johnstown was hit with 14 feet of floodwaters caused by heavy rains combined with snow runoff 24 people died in this case and 3000 buildings were damaged or destroyed Then in July 1977, there was another flood caused by a line of thunderstorms that stalled over the area, and also the fact that several dams failed contributed to this. In this case, 85 people died, and there was more than $300 million in property damage. And after this third flood, the town's economy didn't recover as well as it did the first couple of times.
1: Well, you can imagine, though, even after that 1889 flood, there was a lot of discussion about who was to blame. Because as we've discussed, there was clearly more going on than just the natural forces, you know, the dam and and its maintenance. And many people did blame the South Fork. Fishing and Hunting Club for not taking more steps to prevent the dam failure in the first place. Uh, Suits were even filed against the club, but they never really went anywhere. And in discussing how the flood of 1889 didn't have to happen... Uh, Brown points to general industrialization and population growth in the area really being to blame. I mean, we talked about that at the beginning of the show, how this had not too long before turned from a rural agricultural area where some flooding wasn't terribly devastating, at least to life, to a, a densely populated industrial area.
2: She includes a couple of quotes, too, that speak really well to this. One is from David McCullough, who uh, is a former podcast interviewee, and he wrote a book. uh, His first book, I think, was about the Johnstown flood. He said, quote, With the valley crowding up the way it was, the need for lumber and land was growing apace. As a result, more and more timber was being stripped off the mountains and near hills, and in Johnstown, the river channels were being narrowed to make room for new buildings. Where the forests were destroyed, spring thaws and summer thunderstorms would send torrents racing down the mountainsides, and each year the torrents grew worse as the water itself tore away at the soil and what little ground cover there was left. So this kind of helps explain how the industrialization of the area would make the flooding worse.
1: Yeah, taking away the natural buffers that could have helped alleviate natural floods and then making everything worse too. Brown also quotes Megan O'Malley, who is the chief of interpretation at the Johnstown Flood National Memorial. And uh, she says, quote, "'We call the flood a natural disaster, but it was a disaster that occurred from a combination of natural events and human manipulation of the environment. We see this happen over and over in human history. We create preconditions for disaster and then disaster occurs."
2: And I know similar arguments are often made about more recent natural disasters. Certainly.
1: I mean, you see it pretty much every time there's a natural disaster. Uh, maybe with the exception of tornadoes, because I think everybody understands there's not a whole lot you can do about that. But earthquakes, hurricanes, floods, every time you'll see a discussion that, that's similar to that one. Um, I guess it's just the, the way of the world.